Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, the DeWine administration wants to streamline operation of state agencies by eliminating nearly one-third of the Ohio Administrative Code. Lieutenant Governor John Husted joins us to talk about finding the sweet spot between good oversight and overburdening red tape. Also this morning, addressing the crisis of a rising number of highway fatalities, an unexpected trend that came out of the pandemic and has continued since. And after being closed for the month of January, the Hancock Historical Museum is reopening for a new year of celebrating local history. Sarah Sisser will tell us what's happening. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. This was really sad news um, that I happened to see on the uh, Newswire, and I wanted to make sure that we uh, pass this along right away because it is uh, it is really sad news. Uh, the man who helped mass produce Peeps has passed away. The uh, familiar marshmallow treat Peeps. Uh, leaders at the Pennsylvania-based candy making company just born say ira born uh they called him bob uh died sunday at the age of 98 uh he was credited with helping to automate the process to mass produce the candy bunnies and chicks that uh we know today as peeps mr born was honored just four years ago by the city of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, with a day noting his role as the father of Peeps. He also came up with a recipe for another uh, popular candy, hot tamales. So if you're not a Peeps fan, surely, surely you love hot tamales. And uh, Ira Bourne has passed away at the age of 98, the father of Peeps and hot tamales. So wanted to make sure that we uh, noted that passing uh, in the news, a very important uh, item there to uh, start the morning with. What else is uh, going on? Uh, um, this everybody was buzzing about this uh, yesterday. Exxon Mobil uh, posted a fifty-six billion dollar profit for twenty twenty-two, uh, not only setting a company record but a historic high for the Western oil industry. $56 billion in profits for ExxonMobil uh, last year. Um, you remember we had the uh, the story uh, in the news. We, uh, I think like yesterday we were talking about it in the, uh, in the news marathon. Uh, what net income for 2022 was uh, $14.5 billion um, compared with a net income of $9.7 billion for 2021. Uh, $56 billion for ExxonMobil dwarfs the previous record high of something like $45 million in 2008. So just jaw-dropping numbers here. Uh, the company said it uh, brought in close to $13 billion in profits just in the fourth quarter. The uh, chief financial officer of ExxonMobil said a combination of strong markets, strong throughput, strong production, and really good cost control led to the increase in earnings. But everybody, when those numbers were announced, uh, jumped on ExxonMobil because the price of gas. Uh, When earlier this year it was up around $5 a gallon, and 
Everybody was screaming. And uh, sure enough, now at the end of 2022, uh, ExxonMobil saying is making uh, record profits. And so people are screaming about that. And the president has said that they're going to look into this and maybe charge some sort of windfall profits or price gouging tax or penalty on the big oil companies for soaking consumers at the pump. You know, the part of this uh, story, though, and I was talking to my wife about this uh, yesterday. We were watching the news and they had the story about uh, ExxonMobil's profits and, and so on. The part of the story that doesn't get reported is that gasoline sales really doesn't represent a majority of the profits for these big oil companies. Remember, oil is refined into all sorts of products, uh, lubricants and plastics and polymers and uh, other industrial chemicals and all of these types of things that only about 45%, I looked it up, about 45% of a every barrel of gasoline or every barrel of oil is refined into gasoline only about 45 percent so again you you look at that and i get it you look at it and and say you know 45 or what is it 56 billion dollars in profit for exxon mobile and you think uh you know how can how can they justify the kind of prices of the pump they should be reducing the prices of the pump but uh if you do the math it's actually not that much per car. You'd, I mean, you'd take it down to how many cars there are in the country and, uh, and how much of their product is actually refined into gasoline, and it gets rather small rather quickly. But uh, anyway, I'm not defending the oil companies. I'm just saying that there's more to the story than what gets reported. I mean... You know, you see $56 billion in profits, you see gas at $5 a gallon, and you think, you know, somebody is getting rich, and we're getting gouged at the pump, when that isn't only part of the story. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting and something worth pointing out. It is uh, not the full story there. What do they say about going off half-cocked? That's kind of what I get the feeling that we are doing with that. But uh, anyway... Some of the other uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. How about this? The possibility that ex- extinction may not be the final word. Now, you think extinction is a pretty final thing. If any species goes extinct, that's pretty much it. But maybe not. A company called Colosso Bio- Colossal Biosciences uh, wants to reintroduce the dodo bird. They want to bring it back from extinction. Uh, it was wiped out 350 years ago. But this startup company has managed to sequence the entire the bird's entire genome and plans to spend $150 million to bring the dodo bird back to life. Uh, they have already attempted to bring back woolly mammoths and Tasmanian tigers, two other well-known extinct species. Uh, scientists say they will gene edit the skin cells of the Nicobar pigeon to match the dodo. Then the genetically altered cells 
will be used to create an embryo. Hmm. The dodo was hunted to extinction in 1662, just 64 years after having been discovered. So we barely had time to enjoy it. And I just wonder, have uh, the people at this company uh, watched the uh, Jurassic Park films? That's what... Before, before they go out there and start reintroducing all of these extinct species to the world... I really need to take a moment. Watch the Jurassic Park movies. I'm just saying. Uh, but definitely one of the most buzzworthy stories of the day. What about this? Um, here is the latest what we uh, have to be worried about. Apparently, social media is rewiring our kids' brains. The uh, Surgeon General has chimed in on this. Uh, after a study published in the medical journal JAMA Pediatrics warned about how uh, warned about the uh, effect of social media on the brains of adolescents, the Surgeon General has joined the fray. Dr. Vivek Murthy appeared on CNN over the weekend, warning that children should only be allowed to access social media after the age of 16. Um, and most social media companies today have that age limit of 13 uh, before uh, kids can sign up for their own account. And that has to do with federal laws about data gathering and and so on. Uh, You can't data mine the personal information legally of kids under the age of 13. So that's why social media companies use that as their benchmark. But uh, the Surgeon General says it should be at least 16, if not 18, before kids should be allowed on social media. He said, uh, 13 is too early. It's a time where it's really important for us to be thoughtful about what's going into their brains and how they think about their own self-worth and their relationships and the skewed and often distorted environment of social media does a disservice to many of those children, the Surgeon General says. So uh, anyway, I thought this was uh, kind of interesting. Is a TikTok's al- algorithm targets vulnerable teens and recommends harmful content to them, sometimes as rapidly as every 27 to 39 seconds. If parents can band together and say, as a group, we're not going to allow our kids to use social media until 16 or 17 or 18 years of age, that is a more effective strategy to making sure that your kids don't get exposed to the uh, harm that they could uh, bring at uh, too early of an age. So I just wonder if you took the word social media and replaced that with rock and roll and you come up with the same exact argument that that so-called experts had 50, 60, 70 uh, years ago. You know what I mean? That's It just seems like this is nothing that we haven't heard before. That uh, it was rock and roll, it was video games, and now it's social media. Uh, there's always something that is rotting our kids' brains that parents have to be worried about. So social media is that. I mean, I get it. You know, kids. Some kids spend far too much time on on social media and with their devices in general. I get it. But uh, the whole idea that it's rewiring our student, our our kids' brains, and it's causing them irreparable harm. We've heard it before, and somehow. 
kids have survived. And I just have a sneaking suspicion they probably will again. But then again, I could be wrong. Teenagers could go the way of the dodo. Have to be (laughs) resurrected by uh, some biosciences startup someday. (laughs) It's all because of social media. And finally... Uh, here is the uh, story, because over the next couple of weeks, we have to have uh, at least one story every day uh, about the Super Bowl. Uh, do you have your snacks ready? The National Chicken Council is predicting that 1.42 billion chicken wings are going to be eaten during the big game this year. 1,420,000,000 chicken wings. Uh, the uh, website Mashed put out a survey And uh, 35% of the respondents said that chicken wings were the best food to have at a Super Bowl party. Uh, The good news is that wings are 22% cheaper this year than they were last Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, The chicken chain Buffalo Wild Wings claims to sell about 13,500 wings per restaurant on Super Bowl weekend. But again, wings are cheaper. However, chips and beer are more expensive this year than last, so you may want to grab another order of wings instead of filling chip bowl. It would be more cost-effective to do that. And uh, another unexpectedly popular Super Bowl snack in the uh, the survey, popcorn. Just simple popcorn. So there you go. As you're planning out your Super Bowl party, uh, don't forget... The wings. There you go. Some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Plenty of sunshine expected today. A high of 26. Partly cloudy tonight. A low of 20. The Ohio Department of Education says it is aware of reports that a couple in Upper Sandusky is involved in a pro-Nazi homeschooling group using a messaging app. Telegram is the messaging app used for what is called the Dissident Homeschool Channel. It has more than 2,600 subscribers. According to the governor's office, racism and anti-Semitism are vile and repugnant. Governor DeWine condemns them in all their forms. Senate Democrats in Ohio are calling for stronger oversight of homeschooling. ODE says it is actively reviewing compliance with statutory and regulatory requirements. I'm Lindsay Mills. The Finley Rotary Club is accepting nominations for the 2023 Golden Apple Awards for Teaching Excellence. We asked one of the winners last year, Becky Booker, business, family, and consumer sciences teacher at Corey Rawson High School, what she likes most about teaching. Just being with the kids and getting them ready for their future and having some of those kids come back and tell me, Mrs. Booker, thank you for what you taught me. I've used it in life. That's what means the most to me. Nominations will be accepted until April 7th, and the Golden Apple Awards will be presented in October. On our website, you'll find a link to the nomination form. There is some good news regarding the flu in the Buckeye State. After experiencing widespread flu activity for most of the last two months, Ohio is now at the minimal level. In November, there were 1,400 flu-related hospitalizations per week. We started to see improvement in December with 10% of all doctor visits being flu-related. That number is now 2.4%. WTOL 11's Amanda Fay reporting. Marathon Petroleum had a big fourth quarter. They're reporting net income of $3.3 billion for the fourth quarter of 2022, which compares with net income of $774 million for the fourth quarter of 2021. 
for the full year 2022. Net income was $14.5 billion compared to net income of $9.7 billion for the full year of 2021. President and CEO Michael Hennigan says in 2022, Marathon delivered on their strategic commitments. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. And now to our cover story this morning. Last week, the DeWine administration announced a plan to eliminate roughly one-third of the Ohio Administrative Code. Just wipe it out. It's part of the Common Sense Initiative, which is tasked with the elimination of outdated, duplicative, or unnecessary rules and regulations at the state level. It is an initiative headed up by Lieutenant Governor John Husted, who joins us this morning with more details. Lieutenant Governor, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. First of all, I want to clarify this uh, right up front. You have already identified most, if not all, of the provisions that you want to do away with, correct? It's not like you decided we're going to throw out a third of all of the rules and regulations and now we have to go figure out what we want to eliminate. That process has already been done, correct? That's correct. We, we actually used a combination of technology and a good old-fashioned people skills to do this. We, we found... Um, we used an AI tool to go through the code and find terms that were outdated, like that you had to do things via certified mail or, or appear in person and things that could easily be done online. And we, we're asking that those processes be updated, but we're also eliminating 5 million words out of the regulatory code, primarily in areas like the Ohio Lottery, higher education, the building codes, because they are unnecessary or duplicative. I'm going to give you one quick example, the building code. Most builders in the country use the national standard, okay? Mm -hmm. We know what that is. That does not need to be in the code. Only thing that needs to be in the code are what would make Ohio different. And by doing that, um, we eliminate 10% or I would say in, in the Ohio building code alone, we're eliminating 1.5 million words. Why does that matter? Because if you're a builder, if you're somebody who's trying to comply with building regulations, you don't need to search through 1.5 million words to figure out what the difference is between the national code and the state code. Take the national code out of there. Just leave the Ohio provisions in there and make it easier for people to comply with the law, saving them time and, mo- time and money. That's what this is all about. Now, as you alluded to, the Ohio Administrative Code uh, covers all aspects of state operations from the Lottery Commission to the Ethics Commission and everything in between. Uh, you cited one example there. Where do the majority of the language to be eliminated, where does that come from? Are there, are there certain agencies or departments that were specifically targeted? Yeah, it, a, a lot of it will come out of the building code, the, the as I mentioned, and right. then the Ohio Lottery, which has games in there that are they haven't used for years. That have all of the rules and regulations, and they're cluttering up the code. Um, higher education, every institution puts its own rules in the code by law. They are supposed to do that. We're saying you don't need to do that. Every Every institution of higher education has the rules. We don't need to clutter up the Ohio revised or administrative code with it. And then, and then the other pieces that I really think are going to be the most helpful are just how we change these processes so people don't have to, you know, drive to Columbus to comply with something. They can simply 
interact digitally and, and just using technology to create more efficiencies. It will mm-hmm. save millions of dollars and tens of thousands of hours of people's time. And, and think about this. Over 200 years, we've had the state of Ohio has been in existence. What do, what do laws and agencies do? They create rules. And these just pile up and pile up, and nobody really is focused on trying to eliminate things that are outdated. That's yeah. what I'm doing with the Common Sense Initiative. We're just trying to make it easier on people to comply with the rules. And, and uh, you know, when you eliminate, we're going to catch people's attention. It's one-third of the Ohio Administrative Code. It right. can be gone yeah. um, within you, a few months here if we can get the General Assembly to go along with it. You mentioned that uh, you use technology to help identify areas where uh, – portions of the code could be eliminated but ultimately how did you decide on what to eliminate and i ask because one would assume that every provision included in the administrative code was put there for a reason that some situation had come up over the years that hadn't been addressed in the existing code so you add a new provision to address it so how then do you decide what is no longer needed and what if you find out later that a provision that was removed is actually needed after all? And couldn't that actually complicate someone's dealings with the state rather than simplify it? Well, we accounted for that because every everything that the technology tools identified, we then sent them back to the state agencies and said, hey, we flagged these particular administrative issues. Mm-hmm. Please let us know if, if, and we would like to eliminate them, please let us know if that is problematic. And so uh, the the attorneys at every state agency looked at what we sent over and if there was a problem then they flagged it and we didn't we didn't put it on the list if they said it's no problem uh then um we put it on the list to to be eliminated now think about this this was this this just never happened before yeah there are state agencies by their own admission say yeah that doesn't need to be in there so why was it in there Mm -hmm. one of the things that happens is every time the general assembly passes a law they say and and the agency identified shall promulgate rules and regulations that's been going on with every law that's been passed in ohio forever basically and what we're saying to the general assembly too in this is that don't require agencies to add rules every time if the if the revised code is enough don't have them write rules and regulations on top of it we're hopefully going to break the general assembly of this practice uh, so that we don't, so that we can be a regulatory friendly state, that things can be simple and clear, and that small businesses don't have to hire law firms to go through and make sure they're complying with the law. That the that the things we're asking them to do are simple and clear, and and people can follow the rules and and do it without having to add a whole bunch of people to help them comply. You're you're talking about there is, is actually one of the the questions I wanted to ask. Uh, what is the benefit uh, to all of this and who benefits uh, from all of this? Kind of uh, explain why people should care. Yeah, well, Roger Geiger, who's the, the president of the Ohio National Federation for Independent Business and the NFIB, uh, he, he said that the average cost of compliance with rules and regulations for most small businesses around $60,000 a year. Because if you're a small business operation, you don't have an an attorney to help you interpret the building code and all of these different um, compliance elements that are in the, in the administrative code. So that's the benefit. The benefit is when you simplify it, when you make it clear, uh, 
eases the burden of compliance on the small business, which saves them time and money. And, you know, for example, if you're in, in Finley or in Canton or wherever you might be in the state of Ohio, eliminating some, uh, an, an occasion where you had to travel to Columbus to, to comply rather than just sending an email or a, or digitally scanning the document and sending it. Those kinds of updates save people so much time and money, and that that's really at the heart of of practically why this is important. You have one of the other uh, parts of uh, this, and I, I think is certainly worth mentioning. Um, you have also launched a tool, because it strikes me that this is sort of the regulatory equivalent of cleaning out your refrigerator and or cleaning out the freezer and finding stuff in the back of the freezer that's been there so long you have no idea what it is, and it's probably no good anymore. And now you have launched a tool that basically aims at monitoring changes or proposed changes to the Ohio Administrative Code moving forward to prevent it from becoming bloated Again, which, again, using the cleaning out your refrigerator uh, analogy, we all know that we clean out the refrigerator and it just we end up stuffing things in it again. So to make sure that this doesn't become bloated again, you're going to make you have this new tool to uh, help prevent that. Yeah, whether it's the refrigerator or you have excess closet space or the attic, you just keep shoving things in there. Right. So um and we're going to try to help prevent that. We, we are creating a, a new tool uh, at csi.ohio.gov that will analyze every bill that's passed by the General Assembly and show the legislature and the public how many new rules they're creating whenever they do it. Because the General Assembly has, has sort of asked us to do two things. They ha- they've passed bills that say eliminate, eliminate the regulations. We want you to to re- reduce the number of regulations in Ohio, but at the same time, they keep passing bills that require new regulations. And mm-hmm. So at this website, we're going to be able to help them understand and help the public understand what rules they're requiring and hopefully through that encourage them not to pass as many things that are uh, re- become regulatory burdens. And we just got to get people to think like that. We've got to change the culture of how we do things so that Ohio can continue to be a really good state to do business. And this is just one more, you know, you don't solve all the world's problems overnight. This is just one more piece of it, making Ohio more regulatory friendly. We continue to move up these rankings as being a more business friendly state. And when you do that, then you get more people that want to do business here, more people that want to live here. Uh, You create more prosperity when you get government out of the way. And I want to emphasize though, this is not creating any, problem as it relates to health and safety. This is this is literally that closet or attic or refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Things were stuffed in there. They have no longer have any value right. uh, in practical sense, and we're just cleaning it out. And, and it's long past time we do that. And we're trying to set the discipline to say, now, let's don't do that kind of stuff again. Let's get better at how we do this. Because technology enables us to be better at this uh, now and be more transparent about it than, than uh, we perhaps the state was in the past. Again, Lieutenant Governor John Husted with us uh, this morning uh, talking about the uh, latest uh, project or initiative, the Common Sense Initiative, uh, eliminating outdated, duplicative, or unnecessary rules and regulations in the Ohio Administrative Code. We've got a link up on our webpage if you want to learn more about uh, how all of this will work and, and what happens next. Uh, Mr. Husted, again, uh, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Great to be with you.
Well, you know, one thing that happened during the pandemic that really no one expected is that traffic fatalities actually went up. Fewer people on the road, yes, but those who were were not driving safely with deadly consequences. And unfortunately, those bad habits we got ourselves into have been tough to break. So joining us this morning to talk about this crisis on America's roads and highways and some resources that can help are the Executive Vice President of Government Solutions at Vera Mobility, John Baldwin, and Damian Kevitt, Executive Director of the organization Streets Are For Everyone, a.k.a. SAFE. And John, let me start with you. Put some context on this growing crisis on our roadways well, well as you mentioned the uh, the situation is not improving in in 2021 we lost almost 43,000 people which is a 16 year high of fatalities on our roadways and in 2022 that trend has continued um, there, there is some bright spots at the end of the tunnel here though which are to a large extent these acts these crashes and fatalities are avoidable a lot of them are, are caused by unsafe driving situations or driving behaviors that are preventable if people would just change their behavior. Let's not speed. Let's not be on our phone. Let's not run red lights. Those are things within our control, and we can really have a massive impact on reducing the number of fatalities on our roadways. And, Damien, you have a very personal story uh, about how you came to be the founder of this organization, Streets Are For Everyone. Share a little bit about that story and talk about what you have learned through your advocacy. Yes, the Streets Are For Everyone was born out of my own tragedy. And uh, in February of 2013, I was cycling in Griffith Park, which is a large urban park in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, I was hit, pinned underneath a car, dragged nearly a quarter of a mile from the street onto and down the five freeway at freeway speed. My right leg was ripped off and about 20 pounds of flesh in two minutes. And miraculously, I survived. But because of that, I started on a path working on advocacy for safer roads to save others' lives. And and part of that, really, the first step I really had to understand and learn is the fact that people don't have to die on the streets across the U.S. It's not inevitable. In fact, it is preventable. And um, we have to change behavior. We have to modify and and re-engineer roads so that the roads are safer, so that less people, and ideally no one, dies on the roads. And that can be achieved. How? Again, John mentioned a a couple of the basic things that we can do. Is it really that simple or is does it go beyond just things like putting down your cell phone and things like that? You know, it, it's a it's a multifaceted problem and there is not one single solution. Uh, distracted driving is a huge problem. Um, speeding is also another huge problem. And in fact, speeding by itself is considered one of the primary collision factors across the entire U.S. and every community um, for uh, injuries and fatalities. So you have to take each item and start addressing that item. And that can be uh, education and awareness, such as the pledge. It can be using technology uh, enforcement. It also can be re-engineering roads so that they are safer and, and more visible and lighting and, and crosswalks and things like that also make a huge difference. John Damian mentioned the uh, pledge, uh, referring to the zero-in pledge uh, that you have helping drivers commit to reducing dangerous driving behavior. Tell us about this. Sure. 
so first of all, as a company, Vera Mobility leverages technology in the, in the form of automated enforcement to, to change driver behavior um, by issuing citations. The zero end pledge takes it to the next level of instead of you know having a citation lead to the change in behavior, why why can't we have a voluntary change in behavior? Like safety is a choice. We can choose to bring it to the front of our mind. We can choose to slow down. We can choose not to do these these risky behaviors. Mm-hmm. So really, it's it's just an extension of who we are as a company. Is is we we have an obligation to try to improve the, those unsafe driving behaviors, whatever way we can. And the pledge is a small way that we're contributing to to making sure that people are, you know, taking personal accountability as opposed to waiting for the government to solve it for them. And this is something that you are encouraging everyone to do. Absolutely. So you can take the pledge at veramobility.com and you can learn about the situation on our roads and, and see some of the technologies that can be deployed to help. And most importantly, take accountability. Spread the word. Um, safety is a choice. Choose to be safe. Damien, you touched on this a, a little bit earlier. I want to go back and, and underscore uh, that obviously we all have a role to play. Drivers primarily by uh, driving more safely, adopting safer driving habits. But you also mentioned communities and the things that need to be uh, done uh, beyond just the things that those of us behind the wheel can do. Talk about how communities around the country can help promote safe driving and safer roadways. Yeah, you know, the, the engineering of a road can make a difference on the uh, lives of those community members around that road. So you can engineer a road so that it's a fast, high-injury road, or you can engineer a road so that it's safe not only for the driver's but for the pedestrians, for the cyclists, the community members around it. And there's more and more people around the U.S., whether working with Streets Are For Everyone or other community groups, that are demanding the roads be engineered to be safe and and working with government officials and holding them accountable for the safety of the roads themselves. Again, uh, Damian Kevitt is executive director of the organization Streets Are For Everyone, a.k.a. SAFE. Do you have a website where folks can get more information, Damian? Yeah, our website is streetsareforeveryone.org. Okay. And they can go on there for information about our advocacy programs and the work that we do. And uh, John Baldwin is Executive Vice President of Government Solutions at Vera Mobility. We mentioned the Zero In Pledge. Uh, again, mention the website where folks can get more information on that, if you could, John. Sure. It's veramobility.com. That's V E R R A mobility.com. Gentlemen, thank you both for taking the time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This is uh, more evidence of a story that we were actually talking about last week on the uh, program. It says more than half of Americans earning six-figure salaries admit that they live paycheck to paycheck. As inflation slammed households last year, um, as of the end of December, 51% of Americans... Uh, with $100,000 or more in annual income, say they live paycheck to paycheck in 2022. This was a survey conducted by Lending Club and Payments.com. That is 9% higher than in 2021 when 42% of six-figure earners uh, made the same admission. Overall, 64% of U.S. consumers or 166 million Americans say that they are living on razor-thin budgets each month. That is up from 61% compared to 
the previous year's findings. Of the 9.3 million Americans who joined the ranks of the monthly struggle, 8 million earn more than $100,000. And it just speaks to the story that we were talking about last week on the program, a bank rate survey uh, finds that a majority of Americans say that they could not afford a $1,000 emergency expense. And we are living paycheck to paycheck. Something goes haywire, car breaks down, the refrigerator goes on the fritz or whatever. It's a $1,000 emergency expense. Majority of Americans say that would be a backbreaker. And with inflation and rising interest rates driving up the cost of everything, that obviously leaves us less money to set aside for that emergency fund. In case you missed it, on Friday, we spoke with Bankrate Chief Economic Analyst Mark Hamrick. Not a big shock that a $1,000 emergency expense would be a backbreaker for many people. This has been true for quite some time. You're right. That has been the case for a number of years now. Uh, The other part of that is, you know, how these statistics sort of pile up in the near term are indicative with respect to uh, the ability of Americans to, um, you know, sort of plow through the current experience. We know that we've been through quite a lot over the last three years, beginning with the pandemic, that Mm -hmm. sent the unemployment rate spiraling higher, inflation over the past two years. So to your point, only 43% of Americans tell us that they could pay an emergency expense of $1,000 or more from savings, and that's concerning. Uh, You know, collectively, we hope that we can do better than that going forward. What is especially concerning uh, in in this particular uh, survey is that this trend where 74% say that they are saving less because they're either making less and or spending more, not of their own volition. But again, if we can't afford a $1,000 emergency expense as it is, and we're saving less, that doesn't uh, certainly bode well for uh, optimism moving forward. Well, you know, we do want to celebrate the fact that we had those 43% who said they could do it. Uh, But we'd like to encourage people out there who have not been able to save enough for an emergency expense. And let's remember that it's typically the, uh, you know, broad advice for people to try to have expenses covering three to six months worth in the bank. So $1,000 is hardly that. That's sort of a a would-be minimum point to begin the discussion. Right. The other part is, Chris, uh, at this point in time, uh, while we might be sort of um, not entirely thrilled about the fact that interest rates have been rising since last March, One of the upsides of that is that the return on savings now is uh, really uh, the best we've seen in well over a decade. So how do we uh, fix this problem? Well, the basic advice, first of all, is to have a dedicated savings account for emergency savings. This isn't money that we want to put in the stock market because that's hard to get to. You can lose your principal there as well. Uh, So you want to have that uh, protected uh, and you want to have that cash liquid, meaning that you can get to it you know, in a day's time or 48 hours time. And so the way to do that is to set up a direct deposit, uh, the money that comes straight out of your paycheck. You can have that part of that going into your main account where you pay your bills, but also have the one for emergency savings. And as you alluded to before, the one thing that we do know is that we can expect the unexpected. More uh, more people, uh, as a result, are uh, turning to credit cards as a way to cover those unexpected and yeah. emergency expenses, uh, which is another data point. And I'm kind of reminded of something that uh, Dave Ramsey is fond of pointing out, that when you're in a 
financial bind, that's the worst time to go further into debt. So you really have to be careful there. Well, you do. And, uh, you know, credit cards are a great tool, but like a hammer, they could be used to build or they can build, <laughs> injure yourself with right. them. And, and uh, you know, credit card interest rates right now are the highest we've seen uh, right now this week at bank rate. Uh, new offers for the best qualified individuals uh, for credit cards are almost 20%. So uh, that interest can really pile up. So, uh, yeah, it is an option, but it can be an expensive option. And, uh, you know, if you're facing a prolonged period of unemployment or a very large emergency expense, that can get costly very quickly. And to your point, Chris, you know, um, uh, unexpected uh, is to be expected, whether we're a homeowner, whether we have some sort of incident in our lives that forces us to go to the emergency room or it's a car repair. Uh, these things do happen. It's just a question of when and uh, how costly will they be. Part of our conversation from uh, last Friday with Mark Hamrick, bankrate.com, uh, talking about their uh, survey, which a majority say that they could not afford a $1,000 emergency expense. We just don't have that uh, uh, extra cash for emergencies saved up, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to save it up. You want to hear our complete conversation with Mark Hamrick about this, uh, you can check out the Good Mornings Podcast Edition. Go to goodmornings.net and scroll down to Friday's program and stream the show online. Or you can listen on demand on the WFIN app, which is free to download from the App Store or Google Play. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. 20 years of making mornings good mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. A woman by the name of Victoria Nasarova is now on trial in New York. This is in the uh, New York City borough of Queens. Uh, Ms. Nazarova is allegedly on trial is uh, on trial for allegedly lacing the, uh, a cheesecake with a tranquilizer in an attempt to poison her friend Olga Civic. Her, her motive for trying to poison her friend, she wanted to steal her identity. The uh, incident in question uh, supposedly happened back in 2016. It is a bizarre and twisted crime that could have resulted in the death of this woman, whose only fault was that she shared similar physical features with the defendant, according to District Attorney Richard Brown. Ms. Nazarova faces up to 25 years in prison, and uh, she is reportedly wanted in connection with a uh, uh, capital crime in Russia from 2014 as uh, as well. Boy, pick your friends carefully is the moral of the <laughs> moral of the story. She tried to poison her friends so she could steal her identity. Uh, what's that old saying? With friends like that, who needs enemies? My goodness, uh, that is kind of crazy. Um, speaking of uh, familiar sayings, uh, you know the uh, saying, physician, heal thyself. Well, in this case, uh, it's a uh, firefighters, uh, firefighters, uh, protect yourself or some, some such, um, in flowery branch, Georgia, uh, firefighters were called out, uh, to a, to a fire, uh, they were called in, you know, on a call. Uh, when they returned to the fire station, they discovered that their fire station was on fire. <laughs> well, not the entire fire station. The uh, firefighters, apparently, when they got the call, 
they were in the middle of preparing lunch. And when they returned, they realized that somebody apparently left the stove on <laughs> as they went on their, on their car and they uh, found their meal ablaze <laughs> on the stove when they got back. Again, moral of the story, you would think the firefighters would know better. But, you know, you're in a hurry. <laughs> Don't leave the stove on. Uh, fortunately, no one was injured, and the team was rapidly able to extinguish the fire. Everybody is okay. No major damage, but make sure you turn the stove off before you leave. <laughs> Firefighters learning that uh, the uh, the hard way. <clears throat> Elsewhere in the broken news today... Uh, Sheriff Wayne Ivey of Brevard County, Florida, uh, had a uh, kind of a cool little gimmick to help uh, make the public aware of fugitives that were wanted in the county and to enlist the public's assistance in tracking down these wanted individuals. On social media, he had a, a thing he called the Wheel of Fugitives which he would spin and a new fugitive's name and picture would pop up with a little background information. It was a stunt encouraging uh, people to be on the lookout for these individuals and uh, encouraging the featured fugitives to turn themselves in. However, uh, the sheriff himself got into a little bit of hot water because David Gay alleges that even though he has been featured on the wheel, he is not a fugitive. And he can prove he's not a fugitive because uh, he was already in jail. <laughs> he was listed as a fugitive. Hey, I'm not a fugitive. I'm already in jail. Um, he said because of the negative publicity of being featured on the wheel of fugitives, uh, he actually lost his job and he is seeking more than $50,000 in damages. He's filed suit. Now, I would argue that maybe... He lost his job because he was in jail. And he couldn't, he couldn't go to work because he was in jail. But he says no, it was because of the negative publicity, the wheel of fugitives. Um, according to an investigation, about one-third of the people uh, featured in 45 episodes of this wheel of f uh, fugitives that uh, the sheriff did were actually already in jail or out on bond or had completed their sentences and were not fugitives at all. And uh, now attorneys are uh, seeking compensation. They say no one has the right to cause compliant citizens to lose their jobs or live in fear of confrontation or arrest. <laughs> so it's the sheriff who's uh, <clears throat> in a little bit of trouble with the law there. For Chalk that up to sounded like a good idea at the time. Uh, a couple of other items here from the broken news, the odd and unusual side of the uh, news headlines. School officials in Portsmouth, Virginia, are now investigating after a 22-year-old assistant basketball coach allegedly posed as a player during a junior varsity basketball game. <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, the uh, coach is accused of impersonating a high school student at Churchland High School. Um... The student, she was actually in, she was actually impersonating a student who is rostered on the team, but was out of town at the time of the uh, game, 
on January 21st. And uh, the problem was they didn't have enough players available, so the coach stepped up and said, well, I'll play. Bad idea. (laughs) Uh, Video taken during the game uh, shows uh, the uh, coach high-fiving the other players on the court after making multiple plays. Uh, The coach, the school says the coach is no longer employed at the school, and the uh, team has actually ended their season now. So now nobody's going to get to play. The family of the student who was impersonated is seeking an apology from the school district. So, <laughs> and uh, and you would think, how could she pull this off? I mean, you know, she's an adult, you know, uh, impersonating a uh, young student. But you see the video, and I, I've seen the video, and it's not immediately clear if you just glance at the at the video which is the out of place player. So, it's apparently, very young looking, but. <laughs> She's been caught. An investigation is ongoing into a road rage incident that ended with an assault in Washington State. Police in Seattle say the driver of a Mustang and the driver of a van got into an altercation on the road and uh, pulled into a parking lot. The driver of the van got out and punched the driver of the Mustang in the face. The Mustang driver then allegedly pulled a knife and stabbed the van driver. A passenger in the van then got out and allegedly assaulted the Mustang driver with a baseball bat. (laughs) It just keeps keeps, uh, accelerating. uh, (laughs) The Mustang uh, driver then ran off but returned when police arrived. No arrests have been made. Uh, Police are talking with witnesses and gathering surveillance video as the investigation continues. It's just continued to escalate. (laughs) You hit me with a fist, I'll... Stab you with a knife. My friend will beat you with a baseball bat. At least they pulled off the road and into a parking lot when they got into this melee. <laughs> My goodness. Road rage. Going crazy. And finally, in the broken news this morning, this story about a skydiver who fell onto a home in Oceanside, California. It happened last Friday evening. A man taking part in a skydiving activity with the... Uh, with the company Go Jump Oceanside, which is one of those skydiving places where anybody can jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Well, apparently something went awry, and this guy fell straight from the plane, bounced off a roof, and landed in some guy's yard after his parachute failed to open properly. (laughs) Neighbors say they could hear the man screaming as he fell. Can you imagine... Having that happen to you, just sitting in your in your house and suddenly hearing somebody scream from out of nowhere, and then somebody bouncing off your roof and into your backyard, we can laugh about it because after spending the weekend at the hospital, the man was released uh, on Monday, and uh, he is going to be fine. He's going to fortunately he's going to uh, recover. Thank goodness for small miracles. Uh, it said here. Uh, He was actually not from Oceanside. After he was discharged from the hospital, the first thing he did was get on a plane and head home. And he didn't jump out of this one. I say it is unclear what caused the parachute failure, but I don't think he really cares. I think he's just ready to go home. And I'm not jumping out of this airplane. There you go. Uh, That is 
today's broken news report. An update on the odd and unusual side of the news. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Take WFIN wherever you go with our updated mobile apps for iPhone and Android. And now you can listen to us on your Alexa device. Get the app at WFIN.com or in the App Store or Google Play. Plus, enable Alexa by searching for WFIN under Skills and you'll soon be saying, Alexa, play 1330 WFIN. And the best part is the apps and skills are absolutely free. On the air at 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Online at WFIN.com and on your smartphone, tablet, and Alexa devices. Today's daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Science has settled the debate for us. The eternal question of who is the most handsome man in the world. And we have an answer. This is uh, actually research by a cosmetic surgeon in the UK, Dr. Julian De Silva. He basically took what is known as the Greek Golden Ratio of Beauty. Uh, it is called Phi, the Greek Golden Ratio of Beauty, a measurement, they say, of physical perfection. Um, and it this goes back thousands of years. Um, it is the ratio of line segments that occur when an object is divided so that the ratio of B to A is the same as the ratio of C to B. And if you're saying, I have no idea what any of that means, I don't either. <laughs> I have no idea what that means, but uh, apparently the ancient Greeks figured this out, and the long and short of it is that any object with this perfect proportion um, attracts us. Our eyes are attracted to objects with this ratio, and we find them visually appealing. It boils down to symmetry. The more symmetrical an object is, in this case a human face, the more symmetrical it is, the more attractive it is. And so with that in mind, Dr. De Silva uh, basically used computer mapping to measure uh, the faces of famous celebrities. And he did male celebrities. I don't know why he did male. I'd like to see about uh, females. But anyway, male celebrities, I guess maybe this is where he started, um, to uh, come up with the answer to who is the most handsome man in the world. And uh, so we did all of the calculations and came up with the, uh, with the percentages. And Regé Jean Page, who was the uh, hunk who became instantly famous in the first season of Bridgerton on Netflix uh, a couple of years back. Remember? He was the hunk that everybody was, uh, was talking about. Uh, all of the ladies were just all gaga over him from uh, Bridgerton, Regé Jean Page. And uh, he is, according to this ratio, the most handsome man in the world with a score of 93.65% on this golden ratio of beauty. <laughs> Science has settled the debate. Um, and by the way, uh, Chris Hemsworth was second on the list with a score of 93.53%. So just a hair behind Reggie John Page. Um, Michael B. Jordan from uh, Black Panther and uh, Creed 3, a very close third with a score of 93.46%. And Harry Styles, uh, who has a birthday today, uh, incidentally, scored a 923 to land in fourth place. 
So, there you go. The top four, the most handsome man in the world. According to science here. So it is kind of uh, opening day for the uh, Hancock Historical Museum after being closed for the month of January. They are now reopening for a new year of celebrating local history. Sarah Sisser is with us this morning. Sarah, thanks very much for uh, dropping by. Good morning, Chris. Uh, So is this kind of uh, exciting you get to uh, the 1st of February and say we can throw the doors open now? It is, yeah. Yeah. It does does sort of feel like opening day, and um, we miss having people in the museum. It's nice to take a month off there after the holidays. Of course, we have a lot of undecorating to do after right. the holidays. Sure, and um, it just gives us an opportunity to sort of start the year with a with a clean slate. We kind of deep clean things mm-hmm. um, that get a lot of love throughout the year. So we're starting off with with a clean slate. And I know uh, that a lot of times you use that time to sort of refresh the displays and so on, because not everything at the museum is on display all the time. Oh so. yeah, absolutely not. And I do think sometimes people assume that's the case, but we have so much in our collection storage, and so yeah, we rotate some things out so that um, everybody gets an opportunity to see some of those things that have been um, at home in the archives and in the collections. Um, This year, we've put out some new um, paintings of historic Finley scenes that were donated by the Hemminger family that for Hmm. many, many years had been hanging up in the Finley Publishing um, offices in the boardroom, and um, they were done by a pretty noteworthy Toledo artist. So we've got okay. those hanging up in the hallway now, so those have a new home. Um, but we we uh, spruce up some of the exhibits, and of course, we had such wonderful exhibits last year with our 1960s um, rock bands, local rock bands, that we've kept that up. Um, of course, that was a collaboration with Judge Reg Routson, and mm-hmm. he's planning um, a large concert this summer, um, so more to be heard about that. But um, So we wanted to keep that up. For, for the concert. And we also have a great exhibit on the 1950s in Finley, sort of those golden years. So we've we've kept that up as well. It's That really uh, speaks to when we talk about uh, history, uh, our minds, at least mine anyway, immediately goes back to like Civil War era or what what have you, or turn of the century. Right. But, uh, you know, the 50s and 60s, it's you know, historic. Heck, that's it's historic, folks. Yeah, 70, <laughs> yeah. 80 years, uh, years ago now. Yeah, and know, actually, so. um, depending on sort of what sector you're working in or, or what you're speaking about, historic is actually 25 years, depending on, or, or 50 years, depending on what you're speaking about. Make so we feel real old. Yes, I know. So people don't like to always uh, think about that. But some of the more modern history is a lot of fun for us because people do remember it. And right. so there's a lot of nostalgia when people come in. We've really seen that with our 1960s. The 60s rock exhibit. Right. Lots of folks that were members of those bands or remember seeing those bands in town. And it brings up a lot of great memories. And, you know, we see people dancing to some of the music and as we they're watching. F- we also forget how just how much things have changed in a relatively short amount of time. Absolutely so. right. And I feel like that's compounded uh, more and more each decade with technology. So right. um, we're even talking about doing something about the 1990s and the toys of the <laughs> 1990s next year. So, again, the more modern history is is a lot of fun for us to dive into. So uh, the museum is open, always something new to see. You encourage people to uh, to stop out. And you also, with the reopening of the museum, have a, another full year of programming beginning tomorrow with first uh, Brown Bag Lunch Lecture. Of That's the right. So um, always the first Thursday of the month at noon. And it's a great way to spend your lunch hour. Um, we say, you know, in, get enlightened over the lunch hour and um, learn something new. So Tomorrow, we have kicking off the uh, the series, we have Kate Hayfield with us, and she is a local resident who's an archaeologist. 
Um, and so she has kind of a unique perspective. The title of her lecture is uh, Indiana Jones Lied to You. So. Greatest, greatest name for a lunch lecture ever. Yes. I love that. And she's just um, such an interesting, such an interesting woman. So we'll look forward to hearing from her. She's worked on a lot of projects here in our area. Um, I know she's been working uh, more recently on some of the river benching efforts. They've uh, mm. uncovered some some interesting stuff by the river. So she's been a part of that. So I'm sure she'll speak about um, some of the interesting finds that she's had as an archaeologist, but also probably some of the less glamorous <laughs> sides of archaeology. <laughs> I'm sure that uh, there's plenty of uh, those stories as well. And again, you talk about, uh, we don't think, uh, when we say archaeology, you think of like Indiana Jones or, yeah. uh-huh. you know, going and, you know, investigating the pyramids of Egypt or yep. what have you. Uh, but right here in our own area. Yeah, absolutely. So again, um, I guess, Within the sector of archaeology, sort of more modern history, when they've been doing the river benching efforts, they've uncovered quite a bit from sort of the gas boom era Hmm. and a little bit earlier. So there was quite a bit more industry and small businesses right along the river there. And so they're seeing a lot of evidence of that and just also Hmm. of um, life along the river there. Things from people's kitchens during the 1880s. And so, yeah, I think she'll probably speak a little bit more about that. That'll be uh, very fascinating. So that's tomorrow at noon. Correct. And so um, if you want to go on our website now, we actually have the full year's worth of brown bag lectures uh, up on the website. And those are always free if you're a member of the museum. We do encourage you to come a little bit before noon just to get a good seat. You're welcome to bring a lunch with you, of course. Brown bag it if you like. Um, and then it's free if you're a museum member. Uh, now, no uh, classic movie night uh, for the month of uh, February. That picks up, what, next month, right? That is correct. Yep, we'll have a uh, classic movie night. We'll start again in March. That'll be March 17th, and um, that'll be The Quiet Man uh, at 7 p.m. for classic movie night. We're going to yeah. do things a little bit different this year with classic movie night. Um, they won't be every month. We'll probably do them more quarterly okay. um, this coming year. But definitely, again, you can look on our website to see the full year's worth of events there. All right, very good. And uh, while we have you here and while we're talking about programming, what are some of the other things that are coming up in the year ahead? Sure. Well, um, we start uh, the year with some activities for kids. We have one of our Victorian teas that we'll be doing um, in the month of March as well. And so you'll be seeing some stuff about that to make reservations. Those are always a great experience for um, children and an accompanying adult. We're going to have an Earth Day celebration in April that we're looking forward to. So we'll sort of combine some of the STEM um, with the history. And of course, our uh, education coordinator, Deb Wickerham's great with that. Um, we'll be bringing back, of course, some favorite events later in the year. We'll have our historic homes tour in October this year. Um, traditionally, that's been done in the spring, but we had yeah. good luck with that uh, two years ago doing it in the fall. So we're going to make that more of a homecoming event okay. uh, in October. And of course, we have Oktoberfest in September is our largest event of the year. So lots of things happening in the summer and fall um, all the way to the end of the year with our holiday programming. Lots to look forward to the Hancock Historical Museum for uh, 2023. And as you mentioned, uh, just like the uh, Brown Bag uh, Lunch Lecture is free for museum members and uh, quite often for many of the uh, programs, there's a discount uh, for uh, museum members. It's a great time to uh, join. Absolutely. Always free admission, excuse me, when you come to the museum as a member and then free or discounted prices for most of our events. Um, We get some other great benefits as well. We have some reciprocal benefits now with some other museums. So um, it's a a good investment, uh, not only in some entertainment for you and your family, but also in our community and a community resource that, of course, we really treasure. Absolutely. Uh, We've got a link up on our webpage for more information about uh, everything 
uh, going on at the uh, museum. Go to goodmornings.net for that. And again, Sarah Sisser uh, from the Hancock Historical Museum with this uh, opening today. What are the uh, hours, by the way, for folks who want to uh, stop by and see everything that's new? Sure. Come and see us Wednesday through Friday um, from 10 to 4 and then Sundays from 1 to 4. Very good. Uh, Sarah, thanks very much for dropping by. We thanks, appreciate Chris. it. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks again to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And once again, remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. And that, of course, is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, the unfortunate irony of starting Black History Month with the tragic case of Tyree Nichols being the top story in the news. Until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.